girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the films of Japanese director Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, which are often identified as feminist because of uh, his many young female protagonists. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Marie Haas and new panelist Mariah Chapel. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey. Uh, we're going to take a quick minute to introduce ourselves so that we can just remind our uh, frequent listeners who Marie and I are, and everybody can get a chance to meet Mariah. So, uh, Marie, why don't you go first? Thanks, Katie. Um, so... Like Katie said, I'm Marie Haas. I'm a regular panelist on this podcast. And I recently, finally finished a PhD in early modern literature at Florida State University. So I'm done with that long slog. Awesome. <laughs> and um, decided what I needed after that was more graduate school. So I'm working on a Master of Arts in Religion with a concentration in women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale Divinity School currently. Um, so I've moved up to Connecticut. I'm living here with my spouse of one month, Jonathan Cranston. We're having a good time getting settled in here. Um, and I'm excited for this episode because Miyazaki is just very fun, but I have to admit I don't really know too much about the background of Miyazaki and I haven't even seen all Miyazaki films and I don't really know too much about Japanese films so I hope that my ignorance will be pardoned in our discussion but I've definitely enjoyed the uh, the Studio Ghibli films that I've seen and once fun fact once I dressed up as no face for a tiny little Miyazaki party so um, it's fun, awesome. fun times <laughs> love it um, well, thank you so much. Um, Mariah, how about you? Can you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Mariah Chapel. I'm finishing up my PhD at the University of Georgia. Um, I also do early modern things, and, but I'm kind of double, I don't know, not quite majoring, but I do a lot with DH. And so my uh, project for my dissertation has to do with digitizing uh some marginalia in one of the special collections books we have. Thanks. Hey, and um, um, for, for listeners not familiar with it, um, DH is Digital Humanities. And Mariah is uh, a person I am often amazed by because I have no technological prowess. So it's a really, really cool uh, area. Also, another fun fact about Mariah for our listeners, which is that she was office mates with myself and Victoria Reynolds Farmer of the CFP when we were all at UGA together. So that's a fun, uh, a fun connection. I'm super excited to have her with us today. And uh, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Houston, Texas with my husband, David Grubbs of the CHP and our three children who are four and almost two and seven months old. And I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. I've been back in the classroom this semester for the first time in about a year and that's been really exciting. I'm really enjoying my students here uh, here in Houston, and it's a really diverse group, and that's been a lot of fun for me. 
And uh, I wanted to talk about Miyazaki today because actually a lot like Marie, I, I am a, a really big fan of the films. I haven't seen every single one. I've seen a lot of them and always was struck by the difference between Miyazaki's kind of film filmography and other films that are animated and particularly films that are American films that are animated for children, but but not just for children. And it always seemed to me there always seemed to be a concern in all the Miyazaki films that I've seen with women and with particularly with girls and featuring their exploits, their their heroics often and uh, and their inner lives in a way that you just don't really see very much in American animated films. And we've seen more of that a little bit more lately with films like Inside Out and Brave. But I think that those films are coming out of a kind of Miyazaki tradition a little bit that's been going on a lot longer than that, right? So Miyazaki a long time ago was being interested in, in, in stories about girls. And so I think that some of that stuff may have you know led into some of these films, particularly when we're going to talk about in just a few minutes um, there are some people who work at Pixar who are huge fans of Miyazaki. So we're going to go ahead and move into our knowing section. We're going to talk about a few different things in terms of background before we, we get a little personal and talk also about our own experiences. So just a few quick things about Miyazaki for our listeners um, who might not be familiar. So he was born uh, in January 1941 in Japan and uh, was a very small child during the uh, Second World War. And he always wanted to be an animator growing up and eventually became part of a group known as Studio Ghibli, helped found that studio in Japan with, um, with two other men and uh, Toshio Suzuki, I believe. And uh, yeah, Toshio Suzuki and Isao Takahata in 1985, way back in 1985, they founded Studio Ghibli to make the kinds of films that they wanted to make. And, um, the first really film that um, they made with around the time that Studio Ghibli got started is a film called Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which um, we're going to talk about later is a, um, an adaptation of a character from the Odyssey. And uh, from there, they kind of, and actually his very first film, I'm a little bit getting a little mixed up, I want to be clear, his first film that um, was kind of one of the first films seen in the U.S., that started to kind of prick up the ears of people at places like Pixar is The Castle of Cagliostro. Castle of Cagliostro is a film-length story about uh, Lupin III, who's a famous uh, famous criminal character from a TV series and a manga from Japan, which itself is an adaptation of something else. But Miyazaki um, had helped direct some of the TV episodes in the original Lupin the Third TV series from the 70s. And then um, he directed the Castle of Cagliostro film, which was a full-length Lupin film. And that was um, in the late 70s. So then in kind of 1981, you know, Miyazaki comes to America with some other animators and they screen some bits of Castle of Cagliostro for some animators at Disney. And at that point, that was when it was seen by John Lasseter, who later became just a huge influence in American animation at Pixar. And he was just completely taken with this film. He thought it was amazing. And he was one of the ones who really championed Miyazaki's films um, and the American kind of cognizance in the American press later with things like Spirited Away, which is the film that we're gonna talk about today in detail. So um, it was, and one other thing that's also interesting about Miyazaki is 
when he first made Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, which is one of the, one of the first uh, films that he made, the, where he was at the helm and was in charge, initially the studio was rejecting that premise because there was not a manga that was paired with Nausicaa. So at least at that time, and I think still, it was very usual for there to be a manga or a book to go with any given film that you were going to make. And so he wrote one. <laughs> to go so that he could make the movie, he himself made a thousand page manga text to go with the film. And so that was kind of an interesting detail um, from, the, from the beginning. And just to kind of overview too, not just background overview, a lot of his pieces um, contain what I've seen referred to in, the, in pieces about him as a fixation with flight. Lots of you know flying dragons, people flying in planes, um, Castle in the Sky is a whole movie about a floating island. So lots of, of and, you know, preoccupations with flight. And then his, his most recent film, um, actually, and I can't, I can't remember the name of the most recent one. Um, I've read so much about his movies that I'm getting them all mixed up in my head. But the most recent film was one that was uh, about a character who builds airplanes. And uh, when Miyazaki was a little kid, his dad owned an airplane company that made planes that were used in World War II. So he has this you know, preoccupation with flight. Um, I've seen his movies compared to magical realism, which I think is spot on, um, which is a literary movement that uh, emphasizes kind of fantastical aspects creeping into the regular life in the regular world. Uh, a lot of his pieces contain, quote, attacks on avarice and industrialized warfare. And we're going to talk later about a kind of themes, themes of greed and spirited away. He's definitely been called feminist, which is one of the main reasons that we're, we're talking about him. And um, it's worth also mentioning that he has won an Oscar here in America. Um, spirited Away won uh, Best Animated Feature in 2003. And so he's definitely more in the American eye now than, than he was in the beginning, And but obviously has been a force in Japan for much longer than American audiences have been aware of him. So that's just a, a kind of background um, to get things started today. And one thing that I think I'm definitely not as familiar with is that I think myself and a lot of other Americans too who are familiar with Miyazaki now probably still don't know much about other Japanese animation. And so I'm going to actually, we're going to turn to Mariah now. I'm going to pitch a question to Mariah, which is that how, how does Miyazaki fit in with the kind of larger landscape of the rest of Japanese anime? Um, kind of starting off with the background, I think uh, Bellet, you know, gives a nice little blurb about uh, really the first series that was lauded as anime in, in this style was Osamu uh, Tezuka's Astro Boy. So that was back in 1963 but also making the point that there was animation earlier. It just wasn't as big. And you can definitely tell in the style that they have Disney influences, especially early Disney influences. Snow White, Bambi, you can see it in kind of the bigger eyes and ways that they draw things. But like Katie was mentioning uh, from the other article, a lot of animes are tied to manga series or other adaptations. So they also have adaptations, but it's usually in a series. It's very much a serial medium, whereas Miyazaki's films, you know, we've got one two-hour period to tell this entire tale. So with the series, things 
action's more broken up and there's more time for developing things in the plot. But that's one of the things that I think Miyazaki does really well is even though we've got this finite amount of time in the movie, we have such rich detail and stories. And so a lot of um, anime today, again, you'll see it um, coming from manga, but it's on TV a little bit more and more. Um, Toonami has always been uh, good about showing them. And a lot of times you'll get the ones that are more suited or geared towards young boys. But starting to see some variety, and you can definitely catch some variety in other places. Um, anything else you'd like me to speak to about anime? Just um, this, and this is just because I'm wondering, is it as usual in the rest of, of Japanese animation that you're familiar with for there to be this kind of um, focus on a girl protagonist, or is that pretty unusual? It's a mix. So, as I said, there's some that are targeted towards, like, young boys, shonen, young boys, and then there are ones that are shoujo, uh, targeted towards young girls. I think there is a really good mix. Some shows are very like battle fight driven and it's mostly male characters. There are some female characters, but it's really hit or miss whether they're, you know, big protagonists or not. Then you've got other ones where it is more of what we think of like, I don't know, a teen girl, you know, like high school show. But then you do get some that are really good about fleshing out all the characters and kind of balancing that, you know, need for action with more character development. But yeah, nothing quite like Miyazaki's uh, films that I've seen in the anime. Few that are close. It's really interesting to me that he chose to focus on feature length films, like you said, especially given that that's not as usual in the medium. That's something that's really interesting, I think. Um, and we, on that note, so Mariah's, you know, kind of talking from her experience of what, uh, of where that falls with the rest of anime. We wanted to just talk for a few minutes about our personal past experiences with Miyazaki, which films we've seen, and, and kind of how we discovered him. So um, why don't, Maria, why don't you go first for that? Uh, sure, Katie. Um... So when did I first see a Miyazaki film? Um, I think it must have been when I was in undergrad and I saw Castle in the Sky. And then sometime in the, around that time, too, um, my sister got on this whole Diana Wynne-Jones kick and then discovered Howl's Moving Castle as, in the film version. Um, so we watched that, which is fun as both both book and film. Um and I haven't, again, I haven't seen all of the Studio Ghibli films, but uh, probably Howl's Moving Castle is one of my favorites, at least. Um, in terms of least favorite, I'm not sure, but I remember Princess Mononoke as being sort of the least interesting in my memory. But now that I've been reading sort of on the background of the films for this episode, it's made me want to um, want to see it again and get a better sense of the film. So it might not be... Uh, it might be more interesting the second time around if I get the chance to see it again. Um, and of course, I like Spirited Away as well, uh, especially the beauty of the, the images and just the tone of the film. What about you, Mariah? I came uh, to Miyazaki kind of later. I always knew about Miyazaki films, and I just instinctively knew I'd like them, but I didn't actually watch one 
kind of through until um, the years when I was earlier in grad school. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle came on a channel one Sunday afternoon, and so I watched all of it. And of course, I loved it, fell in love with it. Um, seeing Princess Mononoke, and yeah, it does give a different feel. It's a lot more, I don't know, there's more violent, scary things. Like I was kind of thinking which ones would be suitable for like showing to my nephews or something like that. But and then I agree with Spirited Away. It's a really good film. I'd actually just watched it for the first time and yeah, I don't, I'll have to watch it again, but it and Howl are up there for my favorites. Awesome. Thanks guys. Um, I kind of had an interesting introduction to Miyazaki cause I'd never seen any of his stuff until I believe, I think my husband and I were, I think we were married. I, I think we were already married. I don't think we were engaged anymore. And David said, Oh, you, you've never seen Miyazaki. And so we kind of binge watched all of them. Um, we, you know, we were, it was when we were living in Athens. We had a access to the awesome Vision Video store. So we kind of just started renting them. And for maybe a week straight, we watched one every night. And so I've seen um, Castle in the Sky, we've already mentioned. I've seen Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, House Moving Castle, Spirited Away. I've seen Porco Rosso, which is one of the few that does not have a girl protagonist. Uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, which is adorable, and also Castle of Cagliostro, which is his Lupin the Third movie. And that one I've actually seen several times, and I've seen uh, Spirited Away more than once, the rest just once. I would say my least favorite is probably Nausicaa, and I think that's just because it's a really cool premise, but it was one of the earliest ones, and I think there's a little bit less nuance in the messaging. I feel like the messaging of that one gets a little bit heavy-handed. It's a little bit didactic, the kind of environmental message um, that's being pushed in, in a way that I think I think he sends similar messages to that, to the ones in that film and other films with a little more nuance. So that one's probably my least favorite. But again, it's hard to pick a least favorite because they really are all so good. And I, I think my favorite probably is Spirited Away in terms of just a film if I was going to sit down and watch a movie. Though I do also really enjoy The Castle of Cagliostro because my husband and I spent, have also watched a lot of the 1970s Lupin III TV series episodes. And it's really interesting to watch those and then watch the version of the character that Miyazaki presents because it's very different. Um, but I'm going to not say too much about that now because um, Bella mentions that and we're going to talk about her article later. So um, thanks for sharing your, your kind of personal experiences. And uh, moving into kind of a reading phase then, we, we all read a couple of articles this week to do with Miyazaki, and I'm going to pitch the ball now to Marie uh, to summarize a really interesting article. Um, so you go ahead, Marie. Okay, thanks, Katie. Um, so like Katie says, there's a couple articles that are the background reading for this episode, and they'll be linked in the show notes. Um, one is an, a little bit of an older article from 2014 by Shana F. Jones, and the other one is a more recent article from just a few days ago by Gabriel Bellet. And um, so we've been referencing and drawing on those in the background section. And so what I'm gonna do now is just briefly summarize the Jones article um, and then give my response to it and open it up for the other panelists' responses. Um, so in this article from 2014 on the, the site Screen Robot, um, Jones makes the argument that 
Miyazaki is, in her words, one of the greatest feminist filmmakers of our time. Um, and she says this is in contrast specifically to Disney. Um, she finds that Miyazaki's films present female characters who are realistic and active and whose virtues, unlike what she finds in Disney, aren't centered on good looks and whose plots don't hinge on heterosexual romance. Um, so Joan's comments on the prevalence of female protagonists in Miyazaki films, which is something Kate, uh, Katie's been mentioning, um, and she especially mentions Princess Mononoke from the film of the same name, Nausicaa from Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds, and Theo from Porco Rosso, um, who, as Katie mentioned, I think isn't necessarily the central protagonist of the film, but has a fairly pivotal role. Um, so Joan says that Princess Mononoke, unlike Disney's Pocahontas, is remarkable for her political action and her concern for social justice, rather than just for how attractive she is to a man. And Nausicaa, unlike a Disney princess passively waiting for Prince Charming, um, actively seeks to save her world. And Theo, unlike Cinderella, is remarkable for her talent as a mechanic and for her self-reliance rather than for her body and her feminine charm. Um, so after this discussion, Jones briefly comments that Miyazaki's concern for human harmony, including the equality of women, is connected to Shinto philosophy. Um, and then she then concludes the article by contrasting Miyazaki's slower pacing of his films with its inclusion of pauses for contemplation called Ma with fast-paced Hollywood films. Um, and in this final section, even though she doesn't state it explicitly, um, Jones implicitly equates what she calls the testosterone-fueled action of Hollywood films um, with the need for men to, she says, pr prove their masculinity through mediums of war and destruction. Um, so in this last section, Jones is... Um, seeing the slower, more contemplative structuring of Miyazaki's films as a complement both to the feminist content and the pacifist content, um, as it provides this gentler, and it's sort of implied, a more feminine alternative to Hollywood. Um, so that's a basic summary of the article, and now um, I'll give my response, and then we'll move on to the other panelists' responses. Um, so I think I think Joan certainly is right on a couple points. I mean, um, as we our, our dedicated listeners will know, remembering way back to episode five of this show, um, it can be a powerful feminist move in its own right just to have a woman as a protagonist. Um, and there are certainly many central female characters in Miyazaki films, so we have that going on. Um, and not only do women take these these active and central roles in the films, but also their plot lines, even while they sometimes include romance, aren't necessarily focused on marriage as the end goal of a woman's life. Um, so there certainly are a number of these sort of strong female characters of the kind that Jones focuses on. 
But um, to my mind, you know, I think Miyazaki's representation of women goes beyond just this kind of set strong female character. And it might be even more remarkable how often uh, there's this concern in his films with networks of relationships among women. So if, again, thinking back to episode five and later episodes where he discussed uh, film and television, if you remember the Bechdel test, which is whether or not a film has two named female characters who talk to each other about something besides a man, um, so then you know that it's possible to have this sort of kick-ass strong female character who uh, exists in a film that doesn't pass the Bechdel test and who is then completely separated from other women um, and so existing primarily in relation to men and for men. Um, but this isn't the case with the Miyazaki films. They Bechdel all over the place because there's um, there are women who are strong and women who are weak and good and bad and old and young and everything else. Um, and there's women who rely on each other or who rival each other or who work together to achieve a mutual goal or who battle with each other. Um, so you can take Spirited Away as an example of this. The, the, the background conflict in the plot that we have comes from this, this friction between the two sisters, Yubaba and Zaniba. Um, and it's this kind of undefined conflict that's um, related more to character differences and claims to power than it is, uh, seemingly at least, to a man. Um, so we have that female-female relationship going on. And also, um, in the main plot of the film, with Chihiro's quest to restore her parents to human form, um, she's aided not just by the male river spirit, Haku, um, but also by the bathhouse worker, Lin, who befriends her and um, to a certain extent mentors her. So it's this kind of female-female conflicts and networks and relationships more than just the presence of strong female characters in Miyazaki films that, that stands out to me. And I think too, in terms of the approach to gender equality or human equality more generally, there's some more nu nuance to it in Miyazaki's films. Um, and some ways that are brought up in the, the Bellet article that we'll discuss in a minute. So I'll come back to that then. Um, and I just had one last sort of thought on the Jones article. And that concluding section, I felt a little weird when I was reading it. I was trying to figure out, like trying to put my finger on why um, that section contrasting the pacing of Miyazaki films with the pacing of Hollywood action films was sort of rubbing me the wrong way. And I realized that it's because it sort of seems like it's playing into uh, an orientalizing stereotype of the masculine West versus the feminine East. Um, so I think that the, the ma element of Miyazaki films uh, can definitely be read as contributing to their pacifist message and through that to a concern with harmony rather than hierarchy among humans. Um, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily sort of feminine in contrast with the testosterone-fueled action of Western films. Uh, I mean, for one thing, not all Western films are action films. Um, so it's not like – and there's plenty of East, like Eastern action films if we're going to do East-West binary. Um, and for another thing, too, there's there's not anything – necessarily inherently masculine and in having a filmed explosion um, or inherently feminine in having pauses for thought. 
Um, so I think there's a little bit of that going on in the article, maybe. But again, this this sort of east slash west or feminine slash masculine binary um, is really only implied in the Jones article, and I might just be sort of reading too much into that. But um, that was just a last comment there. So, um, what were you guys' response to this article? Um, I I see what you mean about about that kind of maybe just a hint of essentializing or of making a binary there that may or may not be false. I did, I did like the, the discussion of the, the pacing because that was something I think that I've felt on a subconscious level when watching his films but hadn't necessarily realized on a conscious level. And I think that's one reason that they are, another reason that the films can be so emotionally affecting is because you're given moments in them to feel emotion and rather than just moving on to the next thing and another thing that I really enjoy and I noticed this the most rewatching Spirited Away last night is that you also at least in that film he gives the main character moments to feel her emotions without just rushing her on to the next plot development and so you can really kind of see her living in in her emotions and and see her feelings and um and I think that's one of the reasons that his characters feel so real is because they he gives them enough time to feel those emotions in a way that's not rushed and uh, I thought that was I thought that was a good point and yeah definitely yeah and and he uh, one one thing that I like that she pointed out too Jones pointed out is that Miyazaki and his producer who was Takahata who I mentioned earlier they were um, members of the workers union at the studio that they first worked at and that that's um, that that's reflected in the films that that concern for collective justice which is actually interesting given that last week's episode we just talked about corporate feminism and kind of individualized maximizing your potential versus collective action so it's kind of interesting but um, she mentions uh, a working women's collective which is happening in Princess Mononoke also there in Porco Rosso there are kind of there's a kind of all-female factory force that you see in that movie which is a kind of blending of some of these feminist ideas with the idea of collective social justice and so that was interesting when she brought that up too uh, about that because that, that's not something that I had thought about before yeah yeah those are those some of those elements of the the networks among women is thinking of yeah absolutely um and uh I don't know Mariah was there anything that you particularly liked or about this article or disagreed with uh going back to the point about Ma, yeah, I was thinking about that too. Like when I first read over it, I was thinking about scenes in Lord of the Rings where we see sweeping landscapes, you know, we've got a moment. Or even Star Wars, you know, like the classic original action film. I mean, it's got the word wars in the titles. One of the loveliest parts of the first one is when Luke is looking over uh, at the double sunset on Tatooine and, you know, the John Williams music just swells. We get a moment to feel with Luke his frustration about you know having to stay there not getting to go and make his way in the world yeah um and I think I think those are actually really that's a good example too of the of perhaps a kind of maybe maybe that she's she's making American kind of made films a little bit of a straw man perhaps um if only as a way of lifting up Miyazaki even more right um that you know I think Mariah's right that not every you know, even action movie, and 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 you're right too, Marie, that it, it's it's a little bit essentializing. But I do think that that you could definitely feel the difference uh, in Miyazaki when you when you watch d- the differences of pacing and the differences of emphasis, maybe on uh, what things he chooses to point out. 
I just know in, in something that I think she doesn't mention, but I think is perhaps down, I can kind of put down to this idea of ma or of giving these moments of pause is that there are, are images like kind of scenes in Spirited Away that I can picture in my mind at any moment. Like, and, and it might only be on the screen for, you know, five seconds, but every frame is so beautiful and has so much um, potential for provoking thought um, that it's just, and I, I can't do that with other movies. I mean, you know, I've seen so many animated movies um, made in the States and, and, and I don't often see one like that where I can kind of, and maybe that part of that is because he does build in those pauses so that you can take time to notice the surroundings, you know, take time to notice the scenery and notice the beautiful images behind the characters because every minute that they're in frame, they're not talking or fighting or doing whatever it is, you know, to take up time. Um, thank you so much, Marie, for summarizing that article, and it was it was a really interesting one. I'm going to talk now for a few minutes about this Bellat article, and this um, this is actually, like Marie said, very recent. I think it was from September 9th, um, and this was actually, I'm going to give credit, Victoria uh, Reynolds Farmer gave us the tip for this article, which is called The Magic of Miyazaki's Literary Imagination on Studio Ghibli's Rich Literary DNA by Gabrielle Bellot. And this, um, the focus of this article is her kind of going through and giving a little bit, uh, first an overview of Miyazaki's career and um, even some of the background stuff we talked about of, of Japanese anime in general. So, um, you know, even for our listeners who might want a little bit more information about that, the kind of general background, it's a great article to read for that because she goes through and talks about Astro Boy and she kind of gives a lot of the background to Miyazaki and to, to Japanese anime. Um, but she also goes through and, and the main point of the article is just that Miyazaki has always had this interest in and a concern with adapting literary texts in his films to make his movies. And um, interestingly, um, the ones that she talks about, are none of them are spirited away, which we're going to talk about later. But um, I just kind of want to go through and talk a little bit about some of the ones that she mentions that are adaptations, Miyazaki films that are adaptations of literature. And one of the things that she's doing in this article, too, by talking about Miyazaki's adaptation is also just using that as a way to talk about adaptation in general and ideas like who truly owns a character you know is there a true version of of any one character if it can be adapted and changed and so i just wanted to kind of introduce that idea before going through um and one of the things she actually starts out talking about the castle of cagliostro which was um miyazaki's first feature film and based on the manga lupin the third so it was an adaptation of a manga, but the manga was a reimagining of a fictional thief, Arsène Lupin, who was created by writer Maurice LeBlanc in um, 62 years before Lupin came out, so in the early 20th century, and kind of as a criminal version of, of Sherlock Holmes, so a brilliant mind but applied to crime instead of crime solving, though my husband, who's actually read um, several of these original Lupin novels told me that later on in his career the literary Lupin actually gets bored with creating crime making crimes and so decides to he stages his own death assumes a new identity and becomes like a head of the police force and then starts solving crimes so um, you know definitely a long-standing really interesting character 
that was then made into a manga, which got made into a TV series, which Miyazaki directed some of the episodes of, and then Miyazaki made the movie The Castle of Cagliostro. So, I mean, layers and layers of adaptation with this. It's like a, it's like an onion. But one thing that that I really like that Bellette talks about, and this is so interesting to me because I've never read the manga, the Lupin the Third manga, but I've seen the TV series and I've seen the Castle of Cagliostro film. And apparently she says that the Lupin the Third, who, by the way, sorry, let me back up. He's imagined to be the like grandson of the Arsène Lupin, uh, master thief of the you know early twenty, late nineteenth, early twentieth century novels. So in the the manga, he is. She uses the words crass and amoral. Um, all the Lupins of the manga and the TV series and the, the Miyazaki film, they're all master thieves, have a, a kind of cocky, you know, devil-may-care attitude. But um, the Lupin of the manga, according to Bellot, is ruthless and violent. She says, quote, even raping women who deny his advances, which I didn't know. Interestingly, in the TV series that I've seen, he is has ascended slightly so that he's not he's not raping anyone but he definitely is is you know perpetuating lots of of sexual harassment i I feel like i feel like he probably is groping a lot of women um he definitely takes kind of liberties with any woman who is a kind of in in a service capacity waitresses or you know women who are supposed to be helping him and he has this kind of twisted on off again um relationship with fujiko who is um herself also a thief and so he's i told my husband last night to me the the lupon of the tv series is kind of like a, a 12 year old boy set loose with no no you know kind of you know who who has the money and the skills to do anything he wants and you know so it's not he's not a, a, an appealing character per se um though he's often funny but then in Bellot talks about in Castle of Cagliostro then Miyazaki gets a hold of the character and you know turns him into what Bellot calls him practically a soft-hearted gentleman I wouldn't necessarily go that far but he definitely is a is a totally different character in that there's a softness there there's a kind of um just a a more of a winsome quality and in the film castle of Cagliostro, he's trying to save a woman who's being forced into a like a political marriage um she is the daughter of the former duke or um i think it's count the former count who was killed and the kind of usurper then who's taken over the throne is, is attempting to marry her to kind of justify his claim and Lupin's whole task in the film not whole task but one of the main tasks is to he wants to save her from um this this arranged marriage so it's it's something that that I feel like the Lupin of the tv series would never have even cared about if there wasn't a profit in it I guess um and then I I have no idea if you know if that would have ever happened in the manga so it's you know it's this kind of evolution as it were in the character and she also points out that Miyazaki's alterations of the character divided people who were fans of the manga um some people liked it some people were upset because it is it is so different and uh so then she says Miyazaki's film begs the question is his Lupin the same as the original creator's Lupin is any adapted character the same as the original and the answer must be both yes and no and um she also talks about that same idea when she talks about Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind which 
Um, this is just a really, really interesting story for anyone who's interested in literary adaptation. So Miyazaki said in the afterword to the manga that he wrote to go with Nausicaa, the film, that the main character is uh, a blend of the figure or the character Nausicaa from Homer's The Odyssey, and that it's a blending of that character and uh, a princess from uh, a 12th century Japanese story, which is called The Lady Who Loved Insects. Um, there are for anybody who hasn't seen it, in the film Nausicaa, there are these giant bugs that roam the landscape, and um, it's a big plot thing. But uh, Bellat points out that, that Miyazaki's Nausicaa is not really Homeric, and in fact, um, Miyazaki revealed that he first read about Nausicaa, Homer's Nausicaa, in a book about Greek mythology written by Bernard Evslin, where for some reason in that text, she was called a lover of nature. And that was the, the kind of idea of the character that Miyazaki really latched onto. So that then later when he read the Odyssey, he was disappointed to find that Homer's version wasn't really like the one that he read about in the book about Greek mythology. And so he decided that the one he read about was the true one. And so that's what he was going to focus on. And that was just so, it's so interesting that he, he Miyazaki wasn't even worried about you know, trying to conform to the Nausicaa of the Odyssey, who is, you know, a very minor character and um, mainly kind of notary or, or notable for interacting with Odysseus in one of his adventures. And so it's 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 another kind of case where Miyazaki took a, a character, a, a kind of known character, and put his own spin on it in a way that made it um, made it interesting, I guess. Um, and, you know, amplified because the original character in the Odyssey is, is not there for very long. It's not a super developed role. And so it's interesting that he then amplified it out into what it became. Uh, the last film that he, uh, or one, one of the final films that Bellet talks about is, is La Puta, Castle in the Sky, which is the full title of, of Castle in the Sky. And it's a, a reimagining of part three of Gulliver's Travels, where um, Gulliver goes to the floating island Laputa. So this is a really, you know, he's Miyazaki was being really clear. This is what I'm adapting, and she also points out that that section of Swift's text is entitled "A Voyage to Laputa and to Japan," which is also really fun because um, Gulliver also ends up briefly in Japan there, and uh, so Miyazaki was really open about that this was an adaptation of Gulliver's Travels, and you know she talks about. Bella talks about a lot of the similarities, and I'm, we're not going to go too much into that because we want to have time to talk about Spirited Away. But uh, the whole kind of point is just to of the article is just to, to delve into some of this stuff and, and to really point out that Miyazaki has this intense interest in literary text of all kinds, so that he does, you know, he has adapted manga from Japan, something like Lupin the Third, but even that came from a different text, and he also has this interest in all these other texts. Um, from Western and Eastern literature, and that it's always been a concern of his to bring good stories into film from other places. And so I, I thought it was a really interesting article. Again, would be, um, oh, and sorry, I, I forgot to say too, I said that Laputa was the only other one. He also, she also has a long bit about House Moving Castle, which as Marie mentioned earlier, is um, based on a story in Diana Wynne-Jones' novel by the same name. And there's a really interesting discussion of how um, their interactions with the writer before they made the movie and that that was also very interesting and she talks about how like kind of what happened with Lupin um, that Miyazaki's Howl 
is a little bit um, gentler than the Howl of the book, which I don't actually know. I, I, I can't speak to that because I haven't read the book and seen the movie. So maybe when we pass this around, maybe you guys might like to talk about that. Um, and then, you know, she kind of finishes with a discussion of uh, his, his final film, which I, I, I had forgotten the title earlier. The final film was The Wind Rises about um, building fighter planes. And so I just want to kind of end here with um, a quote from the end of the article. So she's quoting Miyazaki. The concept, Miyazaki said in 2005, of portraying evil and then destroying it, I know this is considered mainstream, but I think it's rotten. That's the end of Miyazaki talking. And then um, Bellat says, perhaps this best sums up the literary intrigue into examining the films of Ghibli's directors. Their work is intricate and unconventional, often like the literature they adapt. So that's just a kind of quick um, overview. And as far as how I felt about the article, I, th I thought it was really, really interesting. I really loved what she, um, what she did with kind of tracing the sources for each of these and, um, and not necessarily passing too much judgment, not necessarily saying, well, this, you know, because you'll hear people say sometimes we'll say things like, oh, well, this is better than the book or, you know, things like that. I don't think she doesn't seem to pass too much judgment. She kind of but she does definitely talk about the differences between and, you know, what is it what happens or what does it mean that, you know, this Lupin is different from this other version of Lupin. And, you know, and they're all coming from the same character, but they're all totally different versions of the same character. And it's also a nice I thought this article was a really nice introduction to kind of philosophical ideas surrounding adaptation, um, literary adaptation. If you know, if, if for people who haven't really thought too much about that, if you've never really read much about it, she asks some of the big questions to do with literary adaptation that I think are really interesting. And as I said earlier, I, I really like the article because it's a great background read on uh, the beginning of Miyazaki's career and on how it fitted it, how he fits in with Japanese anime. So I really enjoyed it. Um, what did you think, Mariah? I really enjoyed the book too, because right, I think a lot about adaptation and, you know, for me, it's specifically with Shakespeare Renaissance plays. And you really do get that broad spectrum of adaptation being really broad. It can be kind of a retelling of the book or the play I'm thinking about the first Harry Potter really followed the book a lot or it can be very much more tangentially related um something like she's the man being like Shakespeare's 12th man uh 12th night so I did really enjoy the talk about the adaptation and learning more about the text that uh Miyazaki took these stories from Marie or uh, Marie what about you um well like you guys I like I like Bellet's arguments about the beauty and the versatility of literary adaptations that that can depart from their originals while also clearly making use of them. Um, and I think it would be interesting, too, if we had more time to talk about Spirited Away in terms of literary adaptation, how we could see it as this kind of extended catabasis or journey to the underworld, which, of course, has this long literary tradition, especially the epic tradition. So you see... Um, we, we get basically a 10-year-old girl as an epic hero, which is really fun. Um, but let me just uh, focus for a minute, instead of talking about adaptation, on how Bellet's art arguments in the article relate to gender in the Miyazaki films, since that's what we were um, talking about earlier. Um, so thinking about gender, um, there's a couple parts of Bellet's argument um, that touch on 
a non-binarizing attitude towards gender and to other factors in Miyazaki. So she starts off her article by emphasizing what she calls the narrative and ethical complexity of his, Miyazaki's films, um, in which what it means to be good, bad, male, female, young or old, all become blurred rather than separated by a binary. So those are her words. Um, and um, she connects this to what Katie mentioned at the end of the article, the quote from Miyazaki about um, it being rotten to just portray evil and then destroy it. So that's not the main drive of his plots. Instead, it's a little bit more blurry. Um, so Bella in the article takes this tendency of Miyazaki's films um, as a kind of correlative for the blending and adaptation of uh, literary materials that she sees going on in the films. Um, and a little later in the article, in that discussion of the castle of Castli Castliostro, I can't pronounce it. Caliostro. <laughs> um, Caliostro, thank you. <laughs> um, so in that discussion of the castle of Caliostro, um, Bellet again it points out there how Miyazaki tends to avoid or to trouble these binaries. So she says, even as his heroes and villains, as well as his male and female char characters, end up containing a bit of everything, good, bad, strength, weakness. Um, and she continues, the caricatures that one gender is strong, the other needing to be rescued, and that one character is all heroic while another is all evil, are subtly subverted in the film. Um, and so the point is not so much, I think, uh, when we're thinking about gender in, in Miyazaki, it's not just the, the inclusion of main female characters, um, or even just the focus on female relationships and networks. Um, but, but there's also this troubling of binaries across the board, the gender binaries, and also binaries like good versus evil when it comes to individual characters, or a binary of uh, culture versus nature. So a character in Miyazaki is usually you know, not solely defined by gender and not just flatly identified with good or evil. Um, and in Miyazaki films, this the human relationship with nature, too, isn't so much of this give and take between two, you know, separate kinds of things or entities, but this single seamless continuum. Um, so in Spirited Away, we have um, Chihiro, who's self-reliant, but she isn't just this strong female character. Um, she's scared at times, and she's you know, sometimes stubborn, and sometimes you know, awestruck and wondering, and sometimes tired, and sometimes determined. Um, so as a character, she's human and not just this walking gender stereotype, either of exaggerated femininity or of just the strong female character. Um, and in the conflict between Yubaba and Zaniba, and with the, the nature of this somewhat ambiguous entity like No-Face, um, these things aren't aligned along these stark lines of readily identifiable good and evil that we might be led to expect from other uh, kinds of animation that we've seen, like from Disney. Um, and even in this film, even Haku isn't morally flat since he's said to have been motivated by greed and becoming Yubaba's apprentice slash servant. Um, and like I think Katie mentioned earlier, if we were going to identify an overriding evil or vice in Spirited Away, it would be greed. Um, and 
two, we have the, the blending of the human and the spirit world. That's the premise of Chihiro's journey. And that blending sort of shows the, the interrelation of humanity and the environment, because a lot of these spirits are sort of animating the environment. Um, that's particularly illustrated, of course, with the the scene where we have the god of a polluted river who is cleaned by Chihiro and the bathhouse workers, which, um, of course, shows the need for humans to care for and coexist with um, the environment instead of um, polluting and exploiting it. So it's a few of the binaries that you perhaps see being troubled in um, spirited away in ways that are similar to what Bell is talking about in some of these other films. Yeah, and I, another thing that I think is great, um, and, and I think she mentioned this in her, her article, but we should say it nonetheless, is that um, also in, um, in, it's not just that he is picking a, a female protagonist, but that he, you know, he portrays um, girls in his films, which even, you know, I mean, in, in movies with, quote, strong female characters, you know, like with capital letters, <laughs> um, TV trope style, um, they often tend to be, you know, grown women usually who who usually seem very sexy all you know and also strong or whatever so that you know with the, with his kind of interest in um girl heroines but also in choosing a story like Howl's Moving Castle in which you know your protagonist is transformed into an old woman and spends most of the movie you know the center of the movie is this is a, an apparent old lady I mean that's so revolutionary or you know so unusual I guess to 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 be portraying a character of that gender, but also of that age. It's just very, very intriguing. And yeah. I, I think, yeah, yeah. Would you gonna, were you going to add something to that? No, nope, just agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and another thing uh, just to throw in too, since we're talking about it, I, I found an interview online with Miyazaki where he was talking about spirited away and he, you know, the story about how he came up with the movie is that he was spending time, I think at a country house with a friend and the friend's, um, daughters who were kind of preteen, you know, kind of Chihiro age. And um, he kind of, um, he, he spent, spent every summer with them at, at a mountain cabin. And he said he wanted to make a movie that they could enjoy, you know, and he had said, we made, you know, these other movies, you know, he said Totoro, which was really in, intended for small children. And in Laputa and Castle in the Sky, a boy sets out on a journey. And, you know, what he said was, we have not made a film for 10-year-old girls who are in the first stage of their adolescence. And um, a little further down the same interview, he said, I felt that, uh, he said he felt like the things that they, the manga that were written for them um, only offered, quote, only offered such things as crushes and romance to 10-year-old girls, though, in looking at my young friends, I felt this was not what they held dear in their hearts, not what they wanted. And so I wondered if I could make a movie in which they could be heroines, which is just wonderful um you know the idea that um that he wanted to make a film for young girls in which they watched a young girl you know that it wasn't just because i feel like so often the films made like disney movies or things and again this is getting better i think but you know at least when i was a kid all the female protagonists in the disney movies and things that i saw were you know if not grown were you know teenage women of kind of marriageable age and you know I think it was maybe meant to be aspirational you know the kind of pretty princess stuff whereas with Chihiro I think we really get presented with a very realistic portrayal of of a young girl uh, kind of young girls in their actual forms you know what they what they seem like and and which and actually on that note let's let's go ahead and move on and talk about the movie because I know we don't want to 
to run too long, but just to give a quick, super, super fast summary of this film, which has many kind of different twists and turns, but a young girl Chihiro is headed to her new home with her parents. They're moving to a new house, and she is, is very sullen about this and not happy about it, and they find a strange tunnel in the woods and walk through it and find what appears to be an abandoned town. Her parents eat food in this apparently empty town and then can't stop eating and then turn into pigs and Chihiro then becomes stranded in this little town which is um, a kind of resort area with a bathhouse for spirits. So she's become stranded in the spirit world and she's trying to figure out how to cure her parents and to how to fix um, the problem and also how to how to um, she's trying to discover the secret of a, of a young boy Haku who tries to help her. And so she has various, gets given various jobs in the bathhouse, and um, that's kind of the, the basic story of the movie. And I wanted to kind of just start talking about Spirited Away by asking um, you guys, what do we think about the, um, the depiction of Chihiro? What did you think about her as a, as a character, um, as a young girl character? Yeah, I really liked it. And like you said, at the beginning, she... It's very much like a 10-year-old girl who's moving to a new school away from her friends. She's, yeah, a little sullen, petulant, you know, not very happy. But, you know, then we get by the end, she's like, I got this. I can take a new school, new people, new place easily. Because we really do see her grow and realistically go from, you know, at 10 years old, none of us are perfect, to she's gone through all of this. She's stronger and more sure of herself. And now she's, you know, a 10-year-old going on who has confidence in herself. Yeah, I liked the sort of realistic approach to depicting her and um, her character and the variety of, you know, emotions and uh, attitudes that are allowed to her. Um, And even just like physical depiction um, that her, her standard costume is this baggy green and white t-shirt with some pink shorts and it's so it's not like oh this character has to show the height of fashion because it's a female character has to be fashion but it's more like you know what an actual 10 year old might wear so um so yeah yeah I like the depiction you know it's interesting I read um I think in that same interview with Miyazaki that he had told them that he didn't he had spoke to his animators about how he didn't want her to be too pretty because, you know, it wasn't about that. But then he then got a little worried because he was seeing the things that they were coming up with and he worried that she would be, I guess because of the way that they made her face, you know, much more natural. He worried, he would, then he was worried she was too plain and he didn't know if, you know, he didn't know if it would be an issue. But then in the end, he said he was very pleased and that he thought that she was uh, very charming. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. It, he really seemed to have had a concern during the production that she not be, you know, somebody that a little girl would go out and buy it on a lunchbox, I guess, or I, I, you know, because, because of the pretty, you know, the pretty kind of aspect. I really like her knobbly knees. I love that she has, you know, these kind of skinny legs and, um, that she, you know, she has on kind of sneakers with Velcro on them. I mean, she's, uh, she's definitely a little girl. And I think that the, that the constant reinforcing that you get of that, also really helps the viewer. It helps pull you in emotionally to the movie because it really makes her seem very vulnerable. I mean, you know, she she's very defenseless. 
um, you know, she she's very scared. She has these kind of moments where she cannot control her emotions. Again, very realistic. You know, she'll kind of hold up for a while and be okay. But then there's this this part in the beginning where Haku finds her and, and gives her some food and she she's, you know, starts to eat because I guess she's probably starving. She hasn't had anything for, for several hours and she just breaks down crying and she just can't stop. You know, so that I feel like it's very emotionally real. And I, I really like, too, that I thought her parents also seemed very realistic. Um, you know, her mom kind of keeps telling her to stop hanging on her arm or she's going to make her trip. And, you know, dad keeps talking about, I got four-wheel drive in my car and, you know, don't worry, I'll use my credit card to buy some food. It, it seems like a very real kind of family. And I also like that there's not a kind of lesson, I guess, that, that Chihiro is kind of sullen in the beginning and then she becomes, you know, she becomes embroiled in this fantastical other world and there are these dangers and that she becomes a more confident person. But what does not happen is Miyazaki does not try to teach us a lesson about how you should appreciate your parents. You know, she doesn't come back from the spirit world and suddenly look at her parents in a new light and, you know, become a different, more appreciative kid who doesn't complain about moving away. You know, that it's not about that. It's not a tale of, you know, it's not a morality tale of you shouldn't be sullen, but you should appreciate your parents. And I, I kind of, I've always appreciated that about the movie. Yeah, and I less also like her relationship with Haku because, again, she's 10 years old. He's not treated like a romantic crush. They're very much kind of friends and also that kind of murky area when you first meet someone you know you don't know especially in a situation like this who they are what kind of person they are she hears all these bad things from the other bathhouse workers so she's also dealing with you know something we do meeting new people but you know in the end she kind of judges him by how he's treated her how you know he seems he's even though people think he's bad she can see you know the nice person who fed her food and helped her get away yeah oh yeah and I think that's another one of my favorite parts of the the film and it, this goes back to what Marie was talking about and um about rejecting binaries but I think you know one of um, we've said before one of the big lessons or well, not lessons but one of the big themes of the movie is greed so that you know um when Chihiro and her parents find the abandoned town with, but then there's inexplicably, there's all this delicious food. Chihiro doesn't eat it because she's, she's suspicious of the whole situation. Her parents do eat and can't stop eating and turn into pigs. And then and at, and at various points in the film, you see pens and pens and pens of pigs. The implication clearly being that lots of people have been unable to resist and have turned greedy. There's also other scenes later where, um, uh, no face, the spirit no face is giving out gold and all the bathhouse workers are going crazy um, trying to do whatever they can to get more of these gold nuggets. But that's, I feel like that's kind of a, a big on the surface, big film, you know, theme of the film is greed. But to me, one of my favorite things about this movie is that kind of underlying that is a kind of more subtle um, idea that, that appearances aren't, I guess, aren't the most important thing or like Victoria said, or not Victoria, <laughs> I'm thinking about her other office mate. Um, what Mariah said is, you know, that um, Haku is ambiguous. You know, it's not totally sure what he's like, what his true nature is. But in the end, he turns out to be a friend and he turns out to be a helper to her. You know, and then you've got other people. You've got No Face who seems kind of scary and who does turn scary later under the influence of the bathhouse people, but who at heart is just a, a lonely kind of spirit, someone who wants a place to belong. You know, Yubaba looks 
kind of scary um, and acts very scary, but underneath, you know, but she's not completely evil. And so again, it's rejecting the binaries, but it's also, I think, making a point about you can't really judge by appearance. You can't look and go, oh, well that, you know, that no face, he looks evil. Or um, in the beginning, Chihiro encounters the radish spirit, who's a kind of tall globby white mass of a thing who looks pretty scary and you're thinking oh this is probably going to be a bad a bad guy and he helps her so you know that is always also underlying uh, some of these other themes too and it, it, i think that that's one of the 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 best things about about the film um did you guys i, I wanted to ask you because we, we've just kind of been lauding 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 was there is there anything about the movie that you don't like or, or just could could seem problematic I wanted to to bring up something I do like that's just sort of small, but then also something that seems sort of um, problematic. Maybe um, the uh, the small thing I liked so much is I just have to mention the soot sprites are just so cute. <laughs> because yes, <laughs> <laughs> just these cutest little bouncy balls, and it's probably one of my favorite parts of the film when they're there and uh, they fall down like they pretend to fall down so that Chihiro will carry their pieces of coal and I mean of course there's probably some comment being made about like industrialization and like the exploitation of workers and something like that but they're just such cute little soot sprites so <laughs> I just had to get that out there so good um, but the possibly problematic thing like I'm not I'm not sure that 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 it's there's no possible romance element with Chihiro and Haku because, I mean, at least with some of the comments from the other characters in the film, um, like the the boiler room man, when um, Chihiro is like tending to Haku and he's like, ah, that's love or something like that, which is just a little bit, hmm, I don't know, a little bit weird maybe, um, especially. Uh, with um like such a huge generational gap if haku's this ageless river, river spirit you know i don't know but um but then of course on the other hand uh, if we're going to look at it that way um 10 year olds do have crushes so it could be realistic to portray that and then also you know on the other other hand um since haku is a river spirit and his relationship with chihiro goes back to the time when she was a younger you know younger child and fell into the river and was protected by him um is the relationship then just supporting this harmony of humanity and nature theme that we have going on um but i don't know it was a little bit still slightly weird to me maybe yeah and i kind of thought of it um in terms of, oh, they're expanding the ideas of love, because as we know, not all love's romantic love, and kind of made me think of Frozen, the, you know, love there that breaks the curse isn't the romantic love, it's between sisters. So yeah, yeah. they do yeah. kind of leave it ambiguous as to whether it is like, yeah, crush romantic love or friendship, but it seems, you know, like it wasn't pushing it down our throats that, oh, they're in love. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, it's also maybe, and maybe this is, is reading too much into the kind of genesis of the film, but it could also be if Miyazaki is imagining making a movie for a girl of that same age, you know, that it's a very kind of liminal time, right? Of that kind of preteen time where you might have crushes on, you know, people that you know, boys that you know, but also, you know, have, you know, really intense 
platonic friendships. And so I think maybe that's also a kind of nod to, you know, there might, there, maybe there were some girls who watched the film when it was new who went, oh, they are so a couple, you know, or they, you know, they should be together. And then other girls who watched the movie and read it as friendship. And, and it can kind of go either way, perhaps, because of that ambiguity. I see yeah. what you mean, though, Marie. It is a little weird, particularly when he is kind of painted as as a, you know, a, a, this river spirit who, you know, because the other river spirit that we see, the one who comes in polluted, when it, he is, that river spirit is cleansed, the form that you see is kind of a mask image that looks like a super old lined old man face. So it's interesting, whereas Haku looks totally different, you know, in his seemingly human form, he's he looks like a young boy, but then his other form is a dragon. So yeah, it's kind of interesting that, that the way that that's portrayed. To me, the really only, not problematic thing, one thing that's interesting to me and not completely positive is that it's never totally clear with um, one of the characters we mentioned before, the character of Lin, who she kind of takes Chihiro under her wing under her protection and teaches her how to survive in the bathhouse and is a friend to her. It's never totally clear how she fits in. She looks human. I mean, she doesn't have an obviously different form. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of people working in the bathhouse who aren't people, right? There are frogs of various sizes. There are all different kind of monster looking things. She looks human, but we don't know if she, it's never told. Is she a human person who wandered into the spirit world like Chihiro and just like went native um you know is she a spirit and this is her form at one point she says that she wants to get out of the bathhouse one day and take the train the train that only goes one way in the film and leave but you know we don't see that happen before the end of the film so it's just I, I felt like that's the only thing to me one of the few things about the film that to me is unsatisfying is that she's such a great character and so interestingly written and I I, find, I found myself wanting to know what happened to her. You know, does she ever escape the bathhouse? Like, but in the end, I guess the, the whole point is that it's Chihiro's journey. She's the center of the story, you know. And so everything that happens, you know, in the bathhouse in her adventure, you know, when she leaves that world, it comes to an end. And the story ends effectively for the for the viewer. And so that was my one thing that I would love to know is what happened to Lynn? How did she get there? I'd like to see a movie about her. I think that would be really great yeah and that was another thing speaking of lynn that kind of struck me as just a little off all the bathhouse girls because you know they're here in this role serving people and you know it yeah they all are kind of human pretty it was just a little odd to me all the bathhouse girls who were there serving people and pretty and we don't know what all their duties are yeah, I I don't know, and and it's it's one of those things that too. And gosh, see, and I feel like every time I think about this movie, I think about new stuff again. Though maybe I mean, if you're if you're a ten year old Chihiro, how much would you really understand about what everybody's jobs in the bathhouse are? I mean, presume I, I to me, there's the clear implication that some of these bathhouse girls are prostitutes. You know, because when they're trying to find where Chihiro is going to work in the bathhouse, there's a, a, a more made up lady with a fan who says, don't send her to us because she stinks like a human and she will just ruin our whole area of the bathhouse. And so, you know, instead she gets sent to work with Lynn cleaning the bathhouse. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting. But if you're if you're 10 year old Chihiro, how much of that w would go over your head? Would you get that? I don't know. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Mm, yeah. 
Um, did you guys, uh, oh, before I forget, um, Marie, my other tiny favorite part that's not important, but is, is that, um, I cannot, I completely adore Yubaba's bouncing heads <laughs> for people. Who've, and that, that sounds crazy. People have never seen this movie. There are three kind of just heads. They're green kind of faced heads who bounce around the room and go up. And, you know, just kind of make noises. And, and I mean, it's a, it's like a complete throwaway. It's just weird. But they are so delightful. And it's so funny. My husband said last night that he thought it would be really funny if he ever went to, like, a comics convention to dress. And, and we took our kids to, like, dress them up in little spherical costumes, <laughs> like like the green jumping heads in the movie, um, which would be hilarious. So that's my little favorite tiny detail. Um but uh, I, I think, too, my other – well, and, and I guess maybe we should end on this because I don't want us to go too long. But let's go around one more time and say what's your – and I'll start. What's your favorite part, favorite scene or, you know, kind of favorite moment? And uh, I think that my, my favorite part of the movie is when Chihiro is taking the train that only goes one way to go see Zaniba who is Yubaba's sister and returns something to her that's been stolen, but she takes with her, this is, I feel like this is too complicated to explain, but she takes with her um, two tiny little creatures, a little mouse and a little bird who were, um, who were kind of um, affiliated with Yubaba and who've been changed into other forms. And No Face, the spirit No Face goes with her too. And it's just very quiet and this kind of, montage of images and you're seeing these different spirit people get off the train but I love that part because it it reinforces the best part about her to me which is that she goes away to this other place and she finds strength and confidence but that that strength and confidence that is displayed not in a kind of belligerent self-assertion but in a kind of of love and and a kind of caring for others and that's how she expresses herself so that she invites along, you know, the, you know, and in, in the case of the bird, a minion of the person who's been kind of menacing her a little bit. She invites along no face who, you know, at least under the influence of other personalities, briefly became just a monster who was eating people, you know, so she kind of has room for, uh, for caring for others. And, you know, she's taken them under her wing, as it were, and she's going to, she's going to take them along and take care of them. And I think it's just beautiful. And that's um, that's my favorite part. What about you guys? What, what's your favorite part? Um, well, for me, um, I'm afraid my favorite part is the soot sprites. Um, so that's my favorite part. But there was still be afraid. That's awesome. <laughs> but there was something else I wanted to bring up about the film or about Miyazaki's work in general before we end the episode, um, if I can briefly. Um, which is how we can possibly think about this film or his other films um, in a theological way. Um, because, I mean, of course, we know that the underlying philosophy that's being drawn on isn't Christian, and I don't want to twist it to imply that it is. So definitely you know, not. Um, but that being so, is there anything that we can take from the film or Miyazaki's films in general that we can apply to Christian theological thought or practice and um, I think there might be a couple things and I just wanted to throw them out there so I mean we have the broad strokes of thought that are compatible with following Jesus as I understand him with especially the the emphasis on pacifism and on harmony with other humans 
and with nature. Um, and of course, there's that there's the non-hierarchical approach to gender, um, which I see as compatible with or even inherent in Christianity. Um, but at the same time, I know that these three things, the anti-war stance, environmentalism, gender equality, are not inherent in the theology of every person who identifies as Christian. Um, really, actually very few things are for every person identifying as Christian. Um, but I can see them as a part of Christianity for myself, um, say, in relation to Jesus's pacifism or God's creation of humanity in harmony with nature or the Spirit's equal gift of herself to all. Um, and one other thing, when it comes perhaps to spiritual practice, might be about um, this idea of ma, that pause for thought, um, this momentary experience of the still point of the turning world. Can we think of that in some way like like the reiterated selah of the Psalms? Um, or maybe it could be related to the need to be still and to know God um, through and in nature and peace and beauty. Um, that, that sort of idea of the moment of rest is, I think, maybe this deep human need and could be a reason that uh, the beauty of Miyazaki's films can be experienced as so life-affirming, even apart from any of their plot or philosophical elements. Um, so that's not a favorite part, but just some other, uh, some other topics I wanted to quickly bring up before the end. Yeah, I um, just really quickly um, on that, because I hadn't thought to ask that question. That's a really great question. And I think, I think that aside from the things that you mentioned, too, something else that I think a Christian can absolutely at least get out of spirit in a way, not touching on the other films as much, is that I think the film's statements about the dangers of the love of money absolutely um, is something that, you know, we see reflected in scripture and something that Christians need to be aware of. I mean, you know, that that whole, that, you know, and, and the idea also that we influence each other. I think, you know, the, the whole point about the spirit of no face is that he is a somewhat, you know, harmless spirit who seems to have this desire for connection. But then once he gets into the bathhouse and he's surrounded by all these people who have this spirit of greed, it affects him. And he um, becomes this kind of monstrous, you know, me monster, you know, feed me, feed me, you know, I mean, and it's this, so it, it's, it's definitely speaking to ideas of, even though, he, I mean, obviously, like you said, it's not coming from a Christian viewpoint at all, but as Christians, if we're watching it, if I was going to show this film to my daughter, what I would probably say is, you know, think about sin and how it affects us and how our sin can cause us to bring down other people, to affect other people. And, you know, the way that, and I think that the wonderful depiction of the destruction that comes with greed and avarice and, um, and all that, the destruction to your soul, you know, um, is it, I think all that is, is really, really great. And just, um, in general, I think that Miyazaki's concern with presenting the stories of girls and, you know, presenting stories of, of, you know, girls are, are, are people who might often be overlooked or underestimated. And I think you see that in scriptures, the scriptures with Jesus. I mean, he was always seeking out people who weren't considered important or weren't considered impressive and forming connections with them. So I think that you're right, that there's definitely stuff to be found for us as, as, as Christians and um, in the film. Mariah, what about you? What, uh, what did you and what did you love the most about the film? Uh, it's really hard to pick. 
one thing. It was just all gorgeous. Like you'd mentioned before, the town, just walking through, even when it's empty or then when it's starting to fill with spirits and just really Chihiro's, Chihiro's journey through everything, just having to deal with one thing after another and trying to make it to our goal. And thinking about what you were saying about No Face, um, I really love the scene where No Face is at his most monstrous, you know, eating everything and he's asking for her and he offers her gold. He's like, do you want gold? She's like, no, I have to go because she has to go help Haku. He offers, you know, I'll give you whatever. And she just keeps turning him down. And then she's got that magical gift from the river spirit. And even though she was kind of saving it to help her parents and get away, she gives it to him because, you know, she figures he needs it. And he starts regurgitating all the bad things he'd taken in. So that sacrifice really, you know, kind of redeemed him from the monster. Awesome. Um, well, thank you. Thank you guys for those, for those thoughts. And for any listeners who have not been convinced yet, go watch Spirited Away. Um, even if you've never seen any Miyazaki, uh, it's a wonderful story. And I think a great uh, kind of entry into his filmography because it's, it's got so many of the elements that people so admire and in him kind of at their apex, I think. Um, for our last little section, we're going to do, as we always do, we're going to pass on and recommend some things for our listeners. And my recommendation today is um, I'm going to recommend a series of young adult novels by Terry Pratchett, who is a, a very, very well-known fantasy novelist and has written many, many books for adults. But he has a, a series of YA novels that feature a character called Tiffany Aching, who is a young witch. And um, to me, the reason I'm recommending this series of books, and the first book in that little series is called The We Free Men, is that to me those books have always seemed kind of tailor-made for Miyazaki. I have told my husband so many times, every time I reread those books, I keep telling him that I, I wish Miyazaki would, would get a hold of them and make them into movies. Because in Tiffany, in the first book is... Um, I think she's meant to be, she's eight or nine years old, so a young girl. She's kind of doesn't feel like she fits in with her family. She comes from a farm family, but she has these big ideas and she's interested in words and, you know, she's very um, self-aware and she has an adventure and kind of falls into a fantastical world. And the first book is very much a kind of appropriation or, or imagining of, you know, lots of different stories like... Alice in Wonderland, and particularly um, Labyrinth, because she she goes into Tiffany goes into the world of the fairies to rescue her little brother. So um, they're fantastic books. Unlike other Terry Pratchett books, because they're YA, they actually have chapter divisions. Anybody who's a Pratchett fan will know that his adult books have no chapter divisions, which make it really easy to just get immersed and go, oh, it's been six hours and I'm still reading. Um, so they're they're formatted slightly differently from his adult books, but they're wonderful. And some of the um, some characters that appear in the other Terry Pratchett novels pop up in the Tiffany Aching books, notably um, some of the witch characters like Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og. So I, that's my recommendation for today: is Terry Pratchett's *The Wee Free Men*, starring uh, Tiffany Aching. How about you, Marie? Well, I will also give a fantasy recommendation. Um, which seems appropriate with, you know, the content of Miyazaki's films. So I'm actually only halfway done reading this book, but I love it so far. 
Um, it's a fantasy novel that came out last year. It's by Zin Cho, and it's called Sorcerer to the Crown. And it's set in Regency England. Um, and it's uh, this alternate past England that incorporates magic sort of along the lines of what you get in Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell or um, in Mary Robinette Kowal's Shades of Milk and Honey. Um, but what makes this book particularly interesting in terms of its content um, is that it includes an explicit emphasis both on gender equality in terms of female magicians who are attempting to assert their equality in this male-dominated field of magic, which is something that Kowal's book does a lot of. Um, but it also uh, addresses the situation of people of color in this setting, um, which is something that Clark does slightly, um, but it's here a more central concern because the two main characters are people of color. Um, but Beyond that, it's just an enjoyable book. It's so lighthearted and fun. Um, it's very sort of Georgette Hare-like in its language and its plot elements if Georgette Hare had written about magic um, or about people of color. Um, so so again, the author of this book is Zin Cho, and the, the title is Sorcerer to the Crown. Awesome. How about you, Maria? The first thing I thought of, kind of a little thing, was that last season on The Simpsons, they have this little, like, dream sequence that really does pay uh, tribute to Miyazaki. You've got the characters imagined as um, different people, um, like Mo the bartender's turnip head, um, one of the older women, uh, Agnes Skinner's the now the witch, Baba. So I really like that as a little tribute. And then I was thinking as far as kind of getting into animes if you want to get more into the Japanese animation style and want to start with one that was like a manga series initially. Fruits Basket is really sweet. Um, and also Inuyasha. Inuyasha is more like the action. You know, there are a lot of sword fights, but it is also described as being like a Japanese fairy tale. It does have some really strong women characters and um, it was written by a woman, uh, Rumi, I'm forgetting her last name, but yeah, I really enjoyed those and think they might fit well with um, Spirited Away if you're kind of wanting a little introduction into the series. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening today. We actually have a, I have a quick announcement before we end. We, some of you might've seen this on our Facebook page, but if you have not, we are on a search for some new panelists for our podcast. So if you are a regular listener and you've always wanted to get in on the conversation, then please email us at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to have you. So um, thank you so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you, uh, if you want to be a panelist, if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to talk to us, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. And the Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our public publishing liaison. Uh, for Marie Haas and Mariah Chapel, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks for uh, an episode on singleness and the church. And until then, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.